Hello, internet friends, and welcome back to Love Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast by opinionated people. I'm Andy Bowell. And I'm Alex Ruiz, and we're here to brighten your day, anger your soul, and tell you how to live your life. In that order. Thank you for joining us today. Absolutely. Andy, I, I got um I wanted to start with this because it amused me to no end. Anyone who follows our Twitter account knows that I uh consistently post about just how disappointed I expect my mother to be when <laughs> she eventually hears this podcast. And I got I got us set up on TuneIn Radio from the beginning because I knew that it was the like radio app, podcast app that she used. So, Andrew, my mother finally heard our podcast. Oh, no. Oh, God, yes. no. <laughs> um, so she says that she is very proud of the both of us, Aww. you know, for... For endeavoring on this great creative project, uh, so so there is that. <laughs> um, but... She is very she is very disappointed in uh, our language, <laughs> but she made a point to say that uh, she thinks you are doing a better job at this than I am. Oh no! <laughs> She's like Andy doesn't have nearly as big of a problem with it as you do. <laughs> Um, she did, she did, um, I will say this, she complimented the audio. She thinks that it sounds very crisp. She thinks that you have a great radio voice. Oh, that means the world Um, to me. Thank you. Yes. And she is, um, she's very proud of the fact that we are so good at having a back and forth that we stop and allow each other to talk. And she's especially proud of me for giving you the room to talk because (laughs) I'm, I talk so much and so loudly and never give anyone a break. So she's very, very proud of the both of us. So thank you, mom. I love you. Thank you for listening. Um, Thank you, maybe Mrs. Go easy on sh- <laughs> maybe be careful about who in the family you share this with. Uh, I know not all of them speak a ton of English, but most of them do. So this, I, 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 you can share it if you want, but be careful. So far, <laughs> I have no listens in Colombia. But yeah, I wanted to share that with you, Andy, because that, that just brightened my day yesterday. Yeah. That, uh, we, have, we have my mother's qualified approval. That really makes me happy. Thank you so much, Mrs. Ruiz. That means the world to me. Um, Such a kind, polite boy. I try. Yeah, for what it's worth, my folks know about this, but I don't think any of them have bothered to listen to it. And as far as my wife's family is concerned, this doesn't exist. (laughs) (laughs) And that's my choice. (laughs) Well, it's also funny, because, like, so Stephanie told me about how she... um, I guess talk to her parents about this and kind of said the same disclaimers I gave my mom. Like, by the way, they have terrible potty mouths and they talk about this, talk about that. And apparently, like, Stephanie's mother's reaction was she just kind of went, Stephanie, I know. I know who you (laughs) married. And we're sitting here like, that couldn't have been better if she just straight up sang, I know who I married. Like, it was so perfect. (laughs) Oh, wonderful. Hamilton reference, folks. Yeah. I'm surprised we haven't had more of them, to be honest. I I feel like there's certain topics, like, I would love to do a love section on Hamilton, uh, for instance, but some things feel obvious. Like, I don't know, maybe maybe it's the little bit of me that still, like, grew up listening to, like, indie metal and punk (laughs) and is like, oh, I don't want to do the super mainstream thing. Uh Like, 
Yes, of course I love Hamilton, but like, it's almost like if I did Phantom of the Opera as like my big favorite or like a big love, and I'm like, I like Phantom of the Opera a lot, don't get me wrong. It's not a favorite of mine, but I, I do enjoy it. But it's almost like, oh sure, am I gonna do the biggest selling Broadway musical in all of history? The most well-known, most well, most quoted, most hmm. sung out thing ever? Or am I going to try and give some attention to like Sondheim's Assassins, which fewer people know about? Sure, so, sure. So, yeah, I mean, I... You're giving me ideas is what I'm saying. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Uh, yeah, no, I... So I, I guess eventually we'll get to these things because, you know, at, at a certain point, we're going to run out of like non-obvious stuff. Right. So, you know, maybe at some point we'll get over ourselves and just do some more obvious things. Even one of the loves that you talked about doing, not the one you chose for this, but one of the loves you talked about doing is like super well known. And I feel no qualms about going into that one. Uh, although I'd rather give it, you know, some time and space. That might be another triple love later. Maybe, uh, we'll uh, Well, so, uh, you know, just be on the lookout for the the quintuple love special on Hamilton, dear listener. Oh. T- <laughs> <laughs> We're going to invite in. a panel. Oh, God. <laughs> I don't know how many panels you've been to at, like, conventions or anything like that, but... A podcast panel sounds dangerous. I mean, it's become the thing to do, like, podcast live shows, and that's pretty much a podcast panel, so. (laughs) I mean, yeah, but also there's, like, there's usually, like, most places will do a format change of some kind. Like, I I know when Cracked would do their live podcast, they'd have, like, five guests, but each guest would come on one at a time, and it's only at the end that they would have a big discussion with everyone. Hmm, Okay. So, yeah, I mean, I think I feel like that's just a way to manage it. Because otherwise, I don't, I don't know if you've ever, how many podcasts you've listened to with, like, four, five, six people. I don't necessarily know who's who when they're talking a lot of the time. Sure, sure. And, you know, despite, uh, despite our good rapport, there are plenty of instances where you and I uh, talk over each other. So adding more to the cacophony i can see the downside to that i'm sorry i don't know if these people wanted to hear a big technical discussion about how we format our podcast but actually you know what i don't care y'all just heard it yeah we love you as always if you like it uh go make your own podcast but we love you yeah yeah no absolutely we're glad you're listening we're glad you downloaded we don't make any money off of this, at least not yet, so <laughs> we'll, let, we'll let you know like it ever comes to that. Okay, uh, so let's get into the actual show and, and cut this Marin short. Um, <laughs> so last week, uh, My Hate was on an author, kind of, pretty much. Um, and He's an author. Yeah, he's an he's author, an author. yes, yes. All right. How the fuck do you write so many books so fast? <laughs> <laughs> Last week, my hate was on an author, and this week, my love is on an author. Uh, and it was funny how that worked out. I guess I'm on a literary kick. Um, Yay. But my love this week is the late, great Hunter S. Thompson. Mm, and for anybody who isn't, that name doesn't ring a bell, uh, he's the guy who wrote Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. He is one, he has been called one of the greatest comedic writers of our century. He has he, he invented a form of journalism, uh, gonzo journalism. Um, he is a he was a wonderfully caustic, just insane, wonderful man. And he is a great 
he's one of my favorite authors, so I felt it was uh, only prudent to talk about him today. Okay, I'm in. I like books. I like writers. <laughs> I consider myself one. Uh, so I'm definitely interested. Hunter S. Thompson is... I, I wouldn't qualify, qualify myself as a fan of his. I read Fear and Loathing, uh, God, probably 10 or 12 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember liking it. It was part of this like weird survey I decided to create for myself of like post-beat writers. And, you know, I, it was fine. Uh, I think... I think for me, I didn't know necessarily what the hype was about, yeah. um, and I, and that's the only Thompson I've read. Uh, full disclosure. Okay. So I'm I'm interested in uh, and Gonzo journalism is definitely an interesting topic that I would love to dive into. So uh, yeah, I mean, feel free. I'm okay. a I'm a partially partially knowledgeable participant, but I definitely have room to learn on this. So feel free to teach. Absolutely. Uh, my my love is is on the man as much as it's about his literary works. I'm going to give people another peek behind the curtain. Normally we write each other an email of our notes and kind of hit on the highlights. And then I like to write a physical other page of notes just for whatever reason. Um, normally it's a page. This time I wrote three before I realized it. <laughs> Okay. So we went long on the last one. I'm going to try my best not to let us go long on this one. I'm going to be as concise as possible, but I want to do, I do, I do like teaching people about things and other people. So I'm going to get into a very brief bio of the man. Um, he was born July 18th, 1937 in Louisville, Kentucky, and lived in Kentucky for most of his adolescence. Um, in high school, he became friends with Porter Bibb, who was the original publisher of Rolling Stone magazine. Mm-hmm. And Rolling Stone, it turns out, was created because Thompson told his friend, hey, you have to make this magazine. Um, so that's a fun little fact. I did not know that. Yeah. I, mean, I, was, I was a huge fan of Rolling Stone. Yeah, magazine. right? It's okay. one, of the, one, of the, one of the greats. Hunter S. Thompson did not graduate high school because he was in jail at the time. Metal. Metal, right? Um, back when you could just throw a 16, 17-year-old in jail for the week and not think about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so instead he joined the Air Force and was stationed at uh, Fort Elgin in Fort Walton Beach, Florida. And it's there that he got his first professional writing job covering uh, a local football team. And he actually had to ghostwrite his articles because airmen were not allowed to have other jobs. But that all worked itself out because he was honorably discharged from the Air Force shortly after for basically being too much of a rebel and rabble-rousing his his fellow uh, enlisted men. At this point, Hunter S. Thompson is like 18 or whatever, and he, he pinballs around the Western Hemisphere. You know, he, he, he goes from Jersey Shore to New York to San Juan, Puerto Rico, to California, to Colorado, to Brazil, to San Francisco. The man bounces all over the place doing uh, odd jobs where he can, but also writing for whatever magazine is around for him to write on. Um, and his, uh, his novel, The Rum Diary which is probably his second famous, second most famous work, uh, was actually loosely based on his time in uh, Puerto Rico. Uh, okay. So, he's bouncing around, he's, he's doing odd jobs, he's writing where he can, and then in 1965, um, Homsen puts himself on the map 
by spending a year with the Hells Angels motorcycle gang. Uh, he spends a year um, kind of observing them, kind of uh, being the writer in their, their midst. He's the, uh, the Jane Goodall to their gorillas. The fact that they have personalities, they have emotions like happiness, sadness, fear. They communicate with kissing, embracing, holding hands. And spends a year studying these people and writing about it, which, you know, the Hells Angels, they were the most notorious feared motorcycle gang in the country at that time. And no one had really done this sort of deep cover uh, writing piece to really understand these people. Yeah, what year was this? This was 65. 65. Okay, so this is before Altamont, uh, where the Hells Angels famously uh, stabbed a man during a Rolling Stones set. Uh, and this was before Tom Wolfe's electric Kool-Aid acid test yep. had a passage that was a little more, I'll call it sympathetic. It wasn't strictly sympathetic, but it wasn't like awful towards them. Yeah. So, okay. Thompson was not really sympathetic. He was, he was doing the thing that he does, which would be pure um, subjective truth as he saw it. And he, you know, he didn't write necessarily kindly about these guys. He, he wrote about being at parties and, you know, everyone's drinking and hanging out and having a great time. And all of a sudden you look in the next room and a gang rape is going on. Uh, he wrote about the fighting. He wrote about, um, you know, he wrote about how, uh, the, the lead dude would beat his wife and no one would care about it. And, um, his relationship with the Hells Angels actually ended after they got into an argument over the hell's angels wanted a cut of the money he was making off of these articles and books and whatever uh thompson refused and they kicked the shit out of him um so so that's how his time with the hell's angels ended but that's that that coverage of the hell's angels and putting that into um, the National Observer and Rolling Stone and eventually making a book out of it, that is what put Hunter S. Thompson on the map as a literary figure. Mm-hmm. So to wrap up, in 1967, he's still in San Francisco and he basically fell in love with the hippie movement um, and got real big into the drug scene and real enthralled by what was going on in San Francisco at the time before uh, shortly becoming frustrated with their lack of political convictions and what he perceived as wanting escapism more than wanting to change policy. Mm-hmm. You know, the, th- the thing that's so interesting about Hunter S. Thompson, he's, he is basically the most left-leaning uh, conservative, and, a, and by the same token, he is the most right-leaning hippie uh, I've ever seen. The man was an avid gun enthusiast, but he was also a personal drug enthusiast. He was anti-establishment, but he was anti-drug profiteering. You know, the man was... He sounds like a libertarian. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, libertarian... I mean, libertarians, they're a co-opted movement at this point, um, thanks to the Koch brothers. But it sounds like he's kind of following a blueprint of libertarianism that is functionally its own singularity. Yeah. Like he really is trying to focus on an individualist stance in the strictest terms. Pretty much. Yeah. You know, there, I don't know if there, if he had a name for it back then, but that's, that's accurate. You know, he was, he was about doing what you wanted to do for yourself. As long as you're not exploiting other people. And, uh, he was, he was very much against 
corruption. He was very much against what he saw as a vile and corrupt uh, Republican movement. The man hated Richard Nixon with the passion of a thousand burning suns. And once I'm swept into office, I'll sell our children's organs to zoos for meat, and I'll go into people's houses at night and wreck up the place. Uh, But he also was disappointed by the hippie movement because I think he saw that as a chance to change something and everyone else saw that as a chance to widen your mind, man. But in any case, um, eventually he moves to Aspen, Colorado, and this is when he stops pinballing around the country. He would, he had a, a property in Aspen for the rest of his life, famously ran for sheriff of Aspen, um, and publicized it and, and said he was on the freak power ticket, uh, and only lost because the Republican candidate, uh, conceded so that all of the anti Hunter S Thompson votes could go to one candidate. Um, so he's basically, uh, you know, the vermin Supreme of the early seventies. Okay. Um, and so in 1970, um, Hunter S Thompson is, uh, hired to go cover the Kentucky Derby with, uh, the artist Ralph Stedman. And this is incredibly important for two different reasons. This article he wrote, which is titled The Kentucky Derby is Decadent and Depraved, um, was sort of the de facto birth of gonzo journalism. And also, introducing him to Stedman created the look. You know, anybody who's read Fear and Loathing, anybody who's seen most of his late articles, that that insane art style, um, which looks like Pablo Picasso on meth, with ink blots everywhere and... Uh, just that 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 ugly, gross style. That's Ralph Steadman, and I love that art style so much. You know, one of my uh, one of one of the favorite gifts that my wife has ever given me was actually a book uh, Ralph Steadman illustrated about the life of Sigmund Freud, and that's like reading an acid trip. Okay. Um, so he writes this article, and it is it is pure what they call Gonzo journalism. Uh, after the fact, you know, somebody's asking Hunter S. Thompson. Um, you know, what, what, what inspired you? What do you, what do you do? What are your influences? And off the top of his head, he just goes, I do gonzo. So what is gonzo journalism? It is defined as journalism that is written without claims of objectivity. Uh, it's often first person. It's energetic, satirical, critical of society, undetached. Um, and, you know, basically cuts through the bullshit, the, the politeness that, more objective journalism does um, Mm -hmm. and instead favors a kind of stream of consciousness, unedited style. It's actually very important for the, the, um, the craft that it is unedited and Thompson would famously wait until it was too late to edit any of his articles to publish anything in so that nobody had a chance Mm -hmm. to, uh, you know, change his words or force him to do a rewrite. Um, Mm -hmm. and so you've read fear and loathing in Las Vegas, anybody who's Mm -hmm. read fear and loathing in Las Vegas, that is gonzo. Um, you know, it's, it's this, this, this stream of consciousness and this, I'm going to tell you what's happening as I see it. These are my thoughts. These are my perceptions, um, style of writing. And when you, you know, you add that to the fact gathering mission of journalism, you get something totally different. You get 
this this form of talking about a thing that I find very refreshing um, and I really enjoy. So I think about Fear and Loathing now. And again, it's been, God, probably 12 years since I've read it, maybe. The thing I remember about Fear and Loathing was this. I I read it following a period of time when I had uh, just gotten done reading a lot of beat writers, and specifically Jack Kerouac. Sure. Uh, and Kerouac was a huge influence on Thompson. Uh, they didn't like each other, but they were definitely influences, or Kerouac was an influence on Thompson's writing. And Kerouac was obsessed with this idea of writing the way a jazz saxophonist plays. Like, this idea of a stream of consciousness put directly onto the page, unfiltered language being the most pure form of experience. Ultimately, Kerouac... Any Kerouac book you read is edited. He didn't want it to be edited, but though that's no publisher in their right mind was going to be like, hey, we're, we're not going to edit this long, rambly, stupid thing that you wrote. <laughs> like, we know you sell, but this is dumb. And I, I know how many uppers you're on. Please, for the love of God, we're just going to do some edits on right. it. <laughs> I guess Thompson probably, his stream of consciousness thing, the thing is people took the narrative of Kerouac's stream of consciousness ignored or were ignorant of the fact that he was edited and managed to actually push through on a stream of consciousness level. And Thompson was one of the people who definitely did benefit from that. Yeah. Uh, what I, yeah. What I always find interesting about Donzo journalism is less the stream of consciousness aspect than the outright claiming absolutely no no objectivity just the idea of this is pure unadulterated my perspective as a journalist embedded in this situation because before that the idea the the journalistic standard and to an extent this still exists uh anyone who reads your local newspaper or just watches a standard news report there's this idea of journalistic integrity journalistic objectivity which is a lie this is a fox news special presentation it was always a lie it was an ideal and it's a it's not a necessarily a terrible ideal to strive for but the idea that any journalist could you know completely separate themselves their own experience their background the thing is even the language that you use in writing forms a sense of subjectivity and to me gonzo journalism was always an acknowledgement of that and saying we can never be fully objective so why try to be objective at all Right, absolutely. You know, this is 1970. This is this is coming out of the the, the summer of love. This is this is coming out of the 60s, and you know, before that, this is coming out of the 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 nuclear family um, 50s. This is coming out of a time where you know there was st- there there was no Fox News. And good evening from Washington. I'm Shepard Smith. There was no read between the lines. We obviously have our own viewpoint, but we're going to we're going to pretend it is purely objective. You know, you had people that were claiming objectivity and whether or not that's actually the case, um, you know, Thompson was the first per- one of the first people to basically go, no, screw that. I I can't promise objectivity, so I'm not even going to try. This is purely um I'm going to let you into my head as I go do this thing and all of my biases and all of my, all of my opinions, you're going to go on the ride with me and you're going to feel them as strongly as I feel them. 
I forgot about the beer. You want some? Oh. How about some ether? What? Never mind. Um, and, yeah. you know, that kind of gets in the way of what journalism is supposed to be. But it, it's like you said, you know, if we believe that nobody is actually objective anyway, and that it is only yeah. something you can strive for, you know, personally, I do like the idea of just going, you know what? No, it's 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 not possible to do that, or at least it's not possible to do that in a way that anybody is going to care about and read about, so I'm not going to do that. It's an honest philosophical question. Like you, So you just said, you just said um, you know, what journalism's supposed to be or, or what it strives to be. I think that's a question that, you know, consumers of media don't ask themselves, but need to ask themselves. Like, Especially, especially now. Like, I know we. I know you said you wanted to keep this section short, but I feel like this is a really interesting idea. Oh, go for it. So we look now at a time when the media that we consume is kind of tailor made to us, and that's arguably the fault of the fact that you know the fourth estate uh, is a capitalist endeavor. Yeah. Like, when the point of it used to be that news was like you had your three channels uh, on the TV. They showed the news. They understood that the news was going to be not a profitable period. Like, sure, they still sold their advertising for it, but they the idea was we're investing in news. We're hiring reporters. We're giving them room to do their journalism, not because we need to make money, but because it is a public good. These were private entities that understood that and, and made that a point. You know, your newspapers existed with the with the news reporting and the opinion section and the advertisers all on three separate floors so to speak whether literally or figuratively like they they made a point of making it so that they did not intertwine with each other yeah. uh and now now where print media is dying nobody really watches the news on tv or if they do they watch the 24-hour news cycle which is its own separate rant but we tailor we tailor our journalism to be the things that reinforce our worldviews. Every one of us does this, uh, and if you if you're not doing it, you're being very deliberate about it, and also you might be lying to yourself. The idea of this kind of journalism being something where you have a stated take, you know, you know what the viewpoint. If you've read three Hunter S. Thompson articles, you know the viewpoint you're going to get on Hunter S. Thompson. You know the viewpoint you're going to get in all the future articles that you read from him. Yeah. So you decide for yourself, is that a viewpoint that will reinforce my that will reinforce my views? Is it one that will challenge my views? And what do I actually want? It's a question that consume, responsible media consumers should ask themselves, even if they don't. Does that make sense? No, that absolutely makes sense. And, you know, my argument to my my argument my my opinion on that is that sorry let me re rejigger my train of thought um <laughs> no because i mean i i completely agree with what you're saying you know my opinion is that you're absolutely uh right and correct and it's the responsible thing to do um but people are sheep uh, for the most part, you know, there's the the Tommy Lee Jones quote about in Men in Black, a person, a person smart, person is smart. People are dumb, panicky, dangerous animals, and you know it. The idea that yes, we should understand our media sources' biases 
is absolutely true, but so few people actually do that. Um, yeah. And with Thompson, I think at the very least, he was one of the first people to just upright, outright do this. Um, and like you said, you read three of his works, you know what his viewpoints are. The thing that I think kind of saves his journalistic integrity as much as possible is the fact that he was so anti everything. You know, we've talked about he he disliked the the right wing crew cut policemen uh, just as much as he disliked the the long haired hippie wasters. You know, maybe it's because I feel like I uh, definitely jive with his kind of true his 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 true good frame point. This idea that you know somewhere in the middle of everything is the right way to go. Maybe I personally jive with that, and I jive with Hunter S. Thompson's viewpoint, and that's why it's easy for me to sit here and go, "Oh, but he was doing a good thing." Um, but I think that his viewpoint was a noble one, you know, for, for all the drugs he was doing for all the mescaline in the desert, this idea that he wanted people to be honest and wanted people to be noble to noble for nobility's sake, not noble because you're going to get something power, money, whatever out of it. But but noble because it is the right thing to do. And this idea of everybody has a face that they put on in public. Everybody has a mask that they wear that hides their true intention. And the thought of getting rid of that mask and just just being your true insane self definitely appeals to me. No, I, I get that. Um... You know, we we had this giant talk about um, existentialist and absurdist philosophy, talking about BoJack Horseman, yeah. and I feel like this this kind of fits as a nice little addendum onto that concept because you know, for Thompson, there's this idea of uh, not to get into the weeds of a whole another philosophy, but um, anyone who's ever read uh, Immanuel Kant. Uh, understands the idea of moral objectivism and the idea of what uh, a proper moral act... Like, Kant argued that morality uh, is uh, definable and is objective across all situations, and that even in uh, terrible situations, objective morality is still clear, whether or not you choose to follow it. And... Thompson seemed to very much fall into this line of there is an objective moral truth here and it's not the thing you're being fed because the thing you're being fed is either this leftist not really leftist because if I'm, I'm never going to call the hippie movie movement properly left but like there is this like anti there's an anti-establishmentism yeah or an anti-establishment message that is really just uh, insincere escapism. It's people of privilege uh, basically playing in a garden uh, and ignoring the ignoring responsibility for the sake of anti-establishmentism or being anti-establishment. And then there is an actual establishment form, and that form is 
ex- exists for the sake of either profit or power or control or uh, superstition or any of these things that Thompson actively loathed. And in the face of that, you know, his answer was trying to speak a kind of truth to power and self-medication. Yeah. Those were kind of his two ways of dealing with it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is that that perfectly sums up his negative thoughts on the counterculture movement and and what he perceived as its failures. And I don't know if this will blow your mind or not, but um, funny thing is, when we talk about Thompson's political views, do you know which like political philosophy he sound uh, apart from the drugs like you know what political philosophy he sounds most in line with in the united states well you said libertarian Pan- earlier but is it no okay Bl- black pantherism huh okay he has the most like he they they are strongly in favor of community organization and community arming yeah they are extremely anti-authoritarian anti-establishment anti-police anti-military anti-republicanism they call out the moderate moderate liberalism for reinforcing a status quo that uh completely undercuts any progress from the lower classes they stand in solidarity with other marginalized classes well all right yeah thompson thompson drugs aside thompson could fit right in with huey newton and the black panthers yeah well there you go learn something new that's I, i completely agree with that that's oh. awesome. Okay, I might, I might, I might do a future love on the Black Panthers. Oh, but do That's going to be besides the point. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Let's 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 continue so, on. So just carrying on. Uh, in 1972, or not 19? Yes, in 1972, uh, he writes "Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas," and you know, I don't want to get too much into that. I don't think we need to, other than it is it is a book that I very much enjoy. Um, and the thing that I think a lot of people miss the point of with both the book and the movie, it's not a book about two dudes randomly going into Vegas in the desert to do a suitcase full of drugs. And that is like the point of the book. It's not this with nail and eye, 200 pages of a guy doing coke and ether. It has all that. It, it, it absolutely. I, I think a lot of people can quote the passage where he's listing off the literal briefcase of drugs that they have but it's about two guys going into the desert to do uh, a bunch of drugs but also it's in pursuit of trying to actually catch the american dream and Mm -hmm. it it there's there's this wonderful passage uh at the end of the book and towards the end of the movie where he's talking about you know basically how he failed to find this thing. He wanted to pin down the beautiful, wonderful American dream and wrap his hands around it. And you can't because it's not there anymore. It's been killed and zombified and perverted. And with the right kind of eyes, you can almost see the high watermark. That place where the wave finally broke and rolled back. And the mixture of the, 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 the 50s conservatism and the failure of the 60s counterculture, you know, those two things helped kill the American dream, in Thompson's opinion. Um, and I think that there's, there's, a, there's a sad kind of beauty and a sad kind of, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. 
um, to to that whole notion. Uh, and that's why I like the book. You know, it's less about um, and and the movie as well. The movie's fun because you know you get to see the insanity, but it's less about arguing about buying an orangutan while you're super high, and more about this great thing, this thing that people across the world used to long for, is dead and gone and buried. So sure. that's my thoughts on fear and loathing. Yeah. yeah, I I get that. I think the reason. And I don't think this is Thompson's fault. I think the reason why that message doesn't come through for a lot of people is because the American dream was commodified for a very long time. Yeah, uh, People were writing about that 50 years before Thompson. You know, the modernists were writing about that. Hemingway and Fitzgerald were writing about that while publishing books that took place in the Roaring Twenties that came out during the Great Depression. Sure. With the understanding of this is what we were, this is this is what we thought we were, and now the crushing reality of your life and and, and the aftermath of World War One, the greatest war of all time, like this has your American dream is a lie. Here's everything about that lie. And then the Beats did it again after World War Two, and they said, Hey, you may you may see Frank Sinatra up there snapping his fingers, but you know, there's there's this barren landscape of cynical darkness that has followed in World War Two. The Vietnam writers did yeah. this. Like people people have been telling this story in a way for fifty years. Thompson was coming in uh kind of with the newest update of it. That's not to say his version wasn't sincere, it's to say that he added on the concept of the counterculture and the failure of that. Because those books were you know, those people were using the beats to kind of buoy their point. And Thompson's writing about that failure. And by that point, by the 70s, you know, after 50 years of people telling you the American dream is dead, probably longer. I, I, my education into American literature gets a little hazy in the, in the, seven, in the 19th century. Uh, that's purely my fault. But, like, it's possible it could have been going on even longer than that. You could argue Steinbeck was doing the same thing way back in the day. But with Thompson, it's kind of like, yes, okay, the American dream is dead. Jesus Christ. I'm just, I'm waiting in line for my sandwich and Coke. I'm on my lunch break. Shut the fuck up, Hunter S. Thompson. Like, Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a point where the American dream was a commodity. Now the death of the American dream is a commodity. And then it's, it, and, and it just continues. Like, that's, that's. You can make, if you can make a dollar out of saying how terrible it is that people are making a dollar out of desolation, cynicism is understandable. Sure. I'd argue it's not excusable, but it's understandable. So sure. I think that's why a lot of people kind of didn't get the proper read off of that book. The movie didn't help either because the movie is not clear at no, all. No, the movie, the movie, um, you know, it's Terry Gilliam, and Terry Gilliam at his best is hard to understand yeah so i i god I you know really you, you know he was you know terry gilliam was on uh signed on to do to do the movie version of watchmen before Zack snyder oh, got I it i think i had heard that oh hmm. imagine that imagine terry gilliam's right. Watchmen. <laughs> that no okay. okay so so to wrap up real to to wrap up the the bio the biography of the man and to get a little into more about personally why i like him um, you know, in 1972, he also covered the um, the the Nixon um, Nixon whoever Nixon was against in 72. I don't quite remember off the top of my head. Um, was that Ma was that Mondale? No, it was, was the Mondale. other guy. 
This was uh, the one Nixon won. This was the campaign Nixon won. What, you, you thought Walter Mondale won? Like, we've never had a President Mondale, my friend. Uh, good point. 47 days into his presidency, Mondale handed complete control of the U.S. over to the Soviet Union. <laughs> uh, okay, the, the, we're getting off the point. Um, he, he, he has another series of articles that got turned into a book called Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail in 72, which really goes in... McGovern, that was McGovern. McGovern, yes. Sorry, that was yes, McGovern. that was McGovern. Yeah. Okay, so he covered, um, he was on McGovern's side of the issue. He was actually friends with McGovern. But, you know, he, he covered the McGovern versus Nixon campaign, and that was another thing that got him a lot of fame and notoriety. His his intense hatred for Nixon was um, really shown to light here. Um, and that was kind of the last high watermark for Hunter S. Thompson. You know, he spends the next 33 years or so with his his own career doing ups and downs, but basically, in his own words, he got too famous, and he got like like the the mystique of Hunter S. Thompson suddenly got in the way of him actually being able to do what he wanted to do, and to do Gonzo, and to um, have his objectivity or lack of objectivity. You know, he famously was sent to go cover the Rumble in the Jungle, which was the fight in Africa between George Foreman and Muhammad Ali. Uh, spends the entire week just drunk in his hotel room and never actually saw the fight or covered any, anything like that. You know, he goes through his ups and downs, but had pretty much lost the spark. And by the end of it, for the last five years of his life, from 2000 to 2005, he was doing a weekly column for ESPN. And, you know, in a way, it's 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 almost like, okay, okay, Uncle, okay, Uncle Hunter, here, here's here's your spot, and you... You, you stay there now, and you do this now. A- after five years of doing this, um, Hunter Thompson kills himself. Um, and that is... It, it, it's not like the ESPN column is what made him do it. If you, it, There's actually reports of, you know, he was talking to his friends and people about all these projects going on. Um, Hunter S. Thompson was, had been interviewed extensively in his later life and talked a lot about how getting old really bothered him. And, you know, he, he needed to get a hip replaced and he was starting to have all these medical issues. Um, and all of these factors really depressed him. And the, the story is actually pretty nuts. He's on the phone with his wife saying, Hey, come help me write this column, come back to Colorado and, and help me finish this thing and cocks a gun and shoots himself on the phone and she didn't realize what was going on she thought it was the sound of a typewriter um and nobody found his body for a few hours he had written a a suicide note which reads like poetry i'm not going to read it out loud but it was it was basically talking about he he was old he he was old and he wasn't doing the thing that that he wanted to do anymore um, and it's interesting. Ralph Steadman has an inter- has a quote. Hunter S. Thompson had been saying for years that if he didn't know that he could kill himself at any moment, he would have gone insane. And and I, I this isn't like Kinnison where I have this thing at the ending that really like brings it together for me. Like this, is, I, I just feel like educating the people about this and talking about this because I think this is 
kind of nuts, you know, and, and and it's sad. And, and we've talked extensively at this point about the, the tortured, tragic artist. I'm not going to try to take that spin on it. You know, it, it seems like a very Hunter S. Thompson thing to do, to decide, all right, nothing here for me anymore. Let's go. And to take take away out. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the last thing, like the last thing I want to talk about is why why I like Hunter S. Thompson. I've talked to everybody about Hunter S. Thompson. I've I've talked about his books. I've talked about his journalism. I like the guy because he was such a unique character. You know, to to be to be this this bizarre, acidic, but at the same time charming. As long as you're not the victim of his of his ire in the moment this character back in the you know 60s and 70s i i think that's that's so interesting i think that's so great and he's he's had he's had a fair amount of um pop culture appearances you know there's there's the the johnny depp movie before we knew he was a wife-beating shithead um which Mm. which put thompson on the map um, there's another movie starring Bill Murray called Where the Buffalo Roam, which is about Thompson in the 70s, and you know it doesn't have as much of a of a, of a mystique to it as Fear and Loathing, but it is an enjoyable movie. He's there's a character in the Venture Brothers named Hunter Gathers who is very clearly Hunter S. Thompson with the cigar, with the long filter and the glasses, and uh, he's basically this Nick Fury character who trained Brock Sampson. <laughs> Okay. And, and and he's delightful. I, I love the Venture Brothers so much. Um, and my absolute favorite uh, depiction of Hunter S. Thompson in pop culture is in Warren Ellis's comic book Transmetropolitan. I love Transmetropolitan. I, it's probably going to be a love, but you know, it's basically imagine the world from Futurama, only not a Matt Groening comedy. Yeah, no, I've, I read. I think I read the first issue like i think i got it uh promotionally and i've meant to pick it up or at least pick up the first like couple of pay i i I only read trade paperbacks um because i'm a cheap bastard (laughs) so but yeah i've always been meaning to check out transmetropolitan i really like that first issue and i'll read like if if warren ellis wrote the ingredients list on a box of cereal i would read it like (laughs) Uh, transmet is one of my two favorite comic books of all time it's a hundred issues it is a comic book that has an ending which we'll get into this probably next episode, I think is vital for any good comic to actually end and to actually be a story that has an ending. Was that just a sneak peek? Yes. Like, oh, shit. <laughs> We've been doing them more and more. <laughs> All right. Um, but it's basically... Uh, the character's name is Spider Jerusalem, and if you've ever seen a bald guy with a spider tattoo and a pair of sunglasses where one lens is green and one lens is red, that's the character I'm talking about. He's 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 Hunter S. Thompson. There's no basically. He is a future Hunter S. Thompson in this decadent dystopia, um, you know, doing all the heroin he can do and railing against the political system. And it's it that description gives you the idea but it also sells the comic short so i give a a hearty five star two thumbs up recommendation to transmetropolitan i think everyone should read it and it's so good because it is a hundred issues of basically hunter s thompson um so no hunter no transmet and then andy is sad oh yeah. we don't want sad no, andy. no so 
that's my love hunter s thompson i he's one of my favorite authors and it 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 has more to do with the author than the works but i very much enjoy him so uh you did a great job keeping it short we're at about minute 50 51 something like that god i love you Uh, you're the best (laughs) (laughs) you're fine i don't i don't actually care but I just love that at the beginning you made a point of being like, we ran long last time, so we're going to try not to run long this time. And <laughs> nope. Uh, we'll see how, how this one goes, because my hate uh, could be short, could be long. It's vague, so I'm, I'm going to be intrigued. Sure. All right, so Andy, I'm going to, as I always do whenever I do the hates, uh, or I think when I do the loves too, I'm going to just ask you uh, a little bit of an intro question, if you don't mind. <laughs> sure. Okay. So, Andy, I want you to do me a favor and uh, name a tradition that uh, you or your family had growing up that really sticks out in your mind as as a positive experience. Okay. My family didn't have a ton, but one I can really lean on. During my childhood, it became a tradition that pretty okay. much every spring break we would go we we lived in colorado at the time every spring break we would take a vacation to orlando and spend a week or two at disney and that was real positive because you know a family vacation and before we actually lived in orlando disney was a, a great source of joy for my dad so that was always great and and you know it was it was it was a fun thing that that you knew was coming every year great great so you know the family time, the the positive experience there. The reason why I wanted to open with that, Andy, is because um, my topic, my my hate for this episode, is the very concept of traditions. Ooh. And the reason, did you not read no, my I, notes? I, I did. <laughs> I'm 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 building intrigue for you. Damn it. Uh, I ruin it. Um, but uh, no. So. I loathe the ideas of traditions, but I ask you to tell me about a positive experience you had, not because I want to tear apart your, you know, your lovely memories of going to Disney with your family, but because I don't want this discussion to come off as me telling you that, you know, your, your Christmas tradition of putting up the tree together on, on the 20th. Uh, every single year or anything that you do like if you are of a certain religion and you have yearly rituals around certain holidays or actions or if your family just has a really awesome tradition that you really enjoy i don't want you to think that i'm completely shitting on that and telling you it's wrong you shouldn't do it or you're dumb for doing it My problem with tradition is the idea that just because any ritual, practice, or activity is old or has been done for a very, very long time, that that one facet of it means that it has inherent value or that it shouldn't be questioned or eradicated. You follow me so far? Yeah, no, I I got you. Yeah, yeah. So to kind of give some idea here, there are positive traditions that might be, say, attached to cultural or religious customs or rituals or have long histories that might help some of their current practitioners sure. of that feel kind of a sense of heritage or lineage. I'm going to I'm gonna possibly talk about uh, a practice in Judaism that I have some issues with, but when I think about positive ones, 
you know, I've I don't see anything wrong with things like Passover seder's, uh, even with bar and bat mitzvahing or something like mm. that. And those are things that have a positive value because think about something like a Passover. It is a story that can create a sense of cultural identity for people of a certain faith. Yeah. I think about, you know, I grew up Catholic. There were rituals that we participated in through Catholicism that I didn't know a lot of other people doing. Like, Andy, did you ever do Three Kings Day? I know I know you grew up uh, Protestant. I never did. I didn't realize people did until like a year or so ago when a couple of friends of ours, uh, uh, we were making plans. And they're like, oh, no, we can't. It's Three Kings Day. We're going, spending the time with the family. And we're like, oh, people actually do that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, my... Like, I had a tradition with my mom where she set up a nativity scene at the beginning of the Christmas, at the beginning of kind of the Christmas season. And, like, every day of December, like, there's this nativity scene, and there is, you know, Jesus and Joseph walking up to the manger. And every day, like, my job was to move the Mary and Joseph a little bit farther. And then on Christmas Eve, we put them in the manger, and we had a little baby Jesus we would stick in there with a little angel on top. And... It was really nice. And then after Christmas, she put the three kings out, and we would have the three kings make the same journey all the way until Three Kings Day. That ritual meant a lot to me. It was a way that me and my mom kind of bonded with one another. Sure. Here's the problem, is that ritual had use beyond the fact that it was something me and my mom just did. You know, we bonded over it. We'd done it most of my life, you know? And, Mm. you know, when it... When it stopped, it stopped for, you know, decent reasons. We had other things going on. I was a little bit older. We stopped getting out of it what we had in it before. Because before it was uh, something wherein my mom could give me a little bit of religious pride. Uh, I felt a sense, I definitely felt a sense of cultural heritage celebrating Three Kings Day because, you know, Latinos seem to do it more than other Catholics, I've realized. Yeah. Like, I've met Irish Catholics. I've met Irish Catholics who celebrate it. I've met Irish Catholics who don't. But I meet very few Latino Catholics who don't do Three Kings Day. The point is that it's not that we... We had other things other than the fact that it was fucking old or always done a certain way that was positive. The issues that I run into, though, is there are... I keep skirting around this. Um, (laughs) There are traditions... No, it's uncomfortable. There are toxic traditions. They're absolutely fucking toxic traditions. They're in families. They are in cultures. They are in faiths. They are in nationalities. And they are not questioned. And that's a problem to me that is disingenuous. And it often causes a lot of harm. I talked about a Jewish tradition that I have no problems with, no issues with. Another one that I have actually, like, I, Andy, People have paid me money to write about this particular topic before. So I feel like I get to say this. Sure. Circumcision. I'm not going to have a talk about circumcision, whether or not it should be done, shouldn't be done. That might be a topic for a future podcast. But I will tell you this story. A few years ago, there was a news report that there were a number of babies in the New York metropolitan area who had been diagnosed with herpes. Oh, okay. And a couple of them died because of it. Sure. And people were trying to figure out, why do these babies have herpes? Why do babies, these fucking babies, have herpes? Like, in, like, 
practically newborns, like within a first year. The common thread between them was that uh, all their families were of a very particular... All the families were Jewish, not an issue. Mm. All of them were participants in a particular sect where the rabbis still performed the bris in the traditional way. The traditional way meaning snipping it with a very old school type of device and then the rabbi removing the foreskin with their mouth. Jeez. That's how they did it way back in the day. Sure, right. And there's, and most practitioners, by a very significant margin, do not practice it this way anymore. They still, circumcision is still traditional. You still do have brisses. But the practices have been updated so that they're A, much more sanitary, B, much less creepy, and C, a rabbi with herpes can't give herpes to a baby. Yeah, that's that's the part that I'm uh, just not pleased by the idea of some some so some dude had herpes of the mouth and was contracting it to all these babies because he was the rabbi because he was the rabbi and (sighs) he was doing it in the traditional way the very very traditional way and the argument for doing it the traditional way is that's how we've always done it that's how it's written about in our books that's how that is the proper way to do this tradition and that's not an acceptable argument. No. That's a tradition that, like, I, and I, I, it's important for me to not appear intolerant. Again, I'm not making my circumcision argument here. I have my opinions about the subject, but that's not what I'm getting at here. Mm. I'm getting at this one particular practice done in an infinitesimal minority of situations. But because it's a tradition, people got seriously, babies, there, there are children who died because of this. Right. There's, there were one or two that died. And the last time, I, I have, I admit, I have not followed up on this story since I read it several years ago. Um, but the last I read, this guy was still practicing. This of is still, was. yeah. This is not a legal practice, by the way. It's done. It's against the law, but they're still doing it because it's important for these families to do things the traditional way. Right. And that's not okay. No. I'm sorry, you were about to say something. Well, well so we're we're inching up to the the thing that. I absolutely agree with you as to why traditions are not okay. The particularly the faith-based ones. And, you know, I have my own beliefs, so I'm not sitting here as, um, someone who is completely outside of this, but the notion of do it or else you're angering God or, or or who whomever your religion your your higher power religion says do this because if you don't it is against x's will and as someone with my own beliefs you know i absolutely say that is a load of crap um and you know you've just brought up probably the the best example for how that can negatively 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 is such a nice way of saying it how that can be horrible for uh you know a family or an individual and it doesn't even have to be the faith-based ones you know you you, as you were talking about all these babies that were dying you got me thinking about anti-vaxxers yeah and and i think anti-vaxxing absolutely um could be classified as a tradition and is absolutely a batshit stupid 
uh, improper, unsafe thing to be doing to one's children. Sure, you say that, but where's the proof? Where's the evidence? Yeah. So I, I live in Asheville, which is a place that's well known for... It's funny, we were talking about Thompson earlier. That's well known for a hippie contingent, more or less. Yeah. Definitely kind of that like new agey kind of thing. So I encounter a lot of stuff that I don't personally believe in, but you know what, that's fine when people aren't hurting each other. And the thing of it is, there are... And for a lot of people, this is a return to a sense of tradition in a lot of ways. And in some ways, that can be really interesting or fascinating. Uh, there's a lot of private doulas around this area. Hmm. Are you familiar with what a doula is, Andy? Yes. A doula is somebody who assists in the birth. Yeah. Um, now, for me personally, I mean, I, I've been in the room for a birth. Uh, I had super medical births. Like, we were in hospitals. I can name the hospital. Like, <laughs> I've driven by it. I've seen it. Like, I know it. Like, it's cool. But if somebody, you know, has been practicing some of this you know, for a good long time, if they come with references. If a, if a parent or set of parents or family chooses to go with, like, a doula route and not, you know, and do the birth in the home or any of that stuff, like, at the end of the day, I don't want to... I don't really have a criticism of that. That's fine if people choose to do that. I would say if that parent also doesn't have, you know, a hospital backup in case there's an emergency that they're probably, you know, not doing their due diligence. But, like, that's a return to tradition that I kind of, like, okay, that's fine. I can I can understand that. Sure. But but this same group of people, not, not specifically doulas, I just mean the same kind of demographic of usually moderately privileged, mm, spiritual but not religious group of nice white liberal folk um, <laughs> are... <laughs> are largely, like, a huge contingent of them are there in the anti-vaxxer movement. And that ain't okay. No. And people say, and, and people will say something like, oh, you know, kids were fine before vaccinations. I'm like, no, they weren't. Do you know what infant mortality used to be? You know another really good business? Teeny tiny baby coffins. Do you know what child polio looks like? Yeah, no, like, I think... In my family! In my family, there are people who were pregnant 15 times and only had 10 kids. Right. What, and, and that, that, yeah, that was some shit. That's how it used to be. And this was not that many generations ago. This was enough generations enough ago that I met these family members. Sure. No, it, and I'm not that old. It's funny. Bring it back to Thompson. Just a fun fact. He was the oldest of three, but his mom was pregnant eight times. There you go. So there, there's the statistic the other way. Yeah. I mean, it. it's... I, I'm not of the opinion that new ways are always the best. I'm not. That's, that's you know, there... I think there's a How I Met Your Mother storyline where Barney's obsessed with the idea that, like, new is always best. Hmm. And I remember that I that philosophical idea. And in, the, in there, it's, like, played... It's played in that How I Met Your Mother way where Barney's talking about one thing, but Ted takes a new lesson from it right. another way. And it's very nice, very simple. You know, it's okay. Ted, I know you love crappy old stuff no one cares about. I don't believe new is always best. I don't believe that, you know, science and medicine have every answer because that's the point of science and medicine. They're doing their best to find the best answer available with current means, methods, 
testing availability etc right like that's that's part of the point and some things do legitimately have decent grounding in the past but the point is they have to be examined very carefully and being old like it turns out did, did you know that bleeding actually can have some uh decent effect on certain diseases diseases no no i was yeah i, I thought you were gonna say just like as a whole and i was gonna say yeah reduce pressure but no i didn't know that yeah no there are certain conditions that bleeding can be a little bit helpful for certain uh infectious diseases leech treatment is kind of being experimentally carefully brought back because it's showing certain you know it's it's showing resilience for certain things huh. now should you be bled if you have headaches like they used to right no yeah. <laughs> that is a bad plan it's not a it's not a catch-all it, the point is that there are certain things that were done traditionally that have merit, but they have merit not because they were old. Again, that's what I keep getting back to. I Did you ever know kids growing up whose parents were like, I feel like this is a very boy thing, but did you ever know parents who were like, well, I played such and such sport, so it only makes sense that my son will be invested in playing such and such sport? Um, Have you ever encountered that? Because I totally have. I can't say that I did. Oh, actually, actually, okay, not sports, um, but the Boy Scouts. Um, okay, because that's that. That was the case for me. You know, my dad was a Boy Scout and uh, wanted me to be one as well. And you know, I've I, I would like my son if I have one to join it. Um, and so, so yeah, there you go. Okay, so. What if you have a son who's like, Dad, Boy Scouts suck shit. <laughs> then, and I don't want to do it. That, I, you know, in the moment, I'm going to go here and say, then my son doesn't have to do Boy Scouts. I, I don't think that uh, it, it, it's something that has to happen, you know? Um, yeah. And that's a healthy attitude towards a potential tradition. Like, it's possible. Like, legacies are a huge thing. They're, they are. Right, yeah. But the problem... But- and that can be great, you know. Honestly, that can that can be a terrific thing. But, you know, I meet people, someone very close to me, who I won't name because I love them, is very into their alma mater. Like, super into their alma mater. It's very, like, you know, you know that stereotype of, like, the rich old white guy who's like, I'm a Yale man. Right. So, obviously, my children will all be Yale people. Right. Like I'm, 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 wa- I'm watching Gilmore Girls with Stephanie right now, and like that, there's a whole thing there where he's like, "I'm a Princeton man." No, I think he says I'm a Yale man, and <laughs> Rory really wants to go to Harvard, and like his mother's like, well, "You went to Yale. She should go to Yale. All of the family is Yale people." And I'm like, "That's some bullshit." <laughs> um, someone, someone in my own life, you know, has straight up told me that if their child does not go to their cho- to the same university that they did. They will feel a deep sense of hurt and rejection. This child is still a baby. Hmm. This child is learning to talk. And their parents have already decided you're going to such an you're going to this college that I went to because it's a tradition. Yeah, I I've you you've seen that in pop culture enough. It it should almost seem obvious that it's setting oneself up for fail, not even for, for college, but to, to be here and say my daughter is going to be a horseback rider. And you you pay all this money for your daughter to have horseback riding lessons, and then when she's thirteen, she could give a shit about horseback riding. Yeah, because she wants to join a punk band or something. Right. Like 
that that speaks to in my opinion a a weakness of the parent this idea that you're so fragile that your progeny can affect you in that way yeah i'm not gonna lie to you um this is this one i don't mind saying aloud um but i i have a little nephew uh, and his uh, his father is super into cars and is like trying to get his son into cars. His son also like the other person. His son is like just learned how to walk, like super young. But he has like car decorations all over the nursery, and he wants to take him to like some street rally race that he races in. And he's like really wants his son to be into cars. And I'm sitting here just being like, God, I hope you're a drummer. <laughs> I hope you're. I hope he's a drummer just so that my brother-in-law is like. But I wanted to do the car. Why won't you do the cars? And I can just be like, ha, 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 he's a drummer. <laughs> like, that's 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 the troll uncle in me right now. But like, I, I, in fairness, I have confidence. Like, if if he's not into cars, like, I don't think his father will be like, you are no son of mine. Like, I don't sure. think they have that kind of setup. Like, I think he'll be disappointed, but he'll get over it the same way. Like. I'm sure, like, my dad was disappointed that I wasn't good at sports, because my dad was an athlete. You're no son, you're no son of mine. No, you're no son, you're no son of mine. Uh, he got over it, and he was like, okay, well, he's good at, he's got good grades, and he likes this theater thing, and he plays guitar. It's fine. He's, he's well-adjusted, he's happy, he's healthy. At the end of the day, I don't give a shit. Like... Well, and that's the way I, I think you should be, honestly. I mean, you know, there's the, the, the argument to the sports thing is, oh, kids are tacky turn. And, and you know, if, if he says he doesn't want to do it when he's seven, you know, and you believe him, he's maybe he's going to want to say he's going to want to do it at, at, when he's eight. And it's like, yeah, but I think do let your kids do what they want to do and what makes them happy and if you share an interest with your child bully for you i'm glad that's something you can bond over but you know your relationship as a parent shouldn't be diminished just because maybe you don't have the same interests and i think your dad's a good example of that that's true but also i mean here's the thing i don't know if you experienced this when you got married but did you have a bunch of family members come out of the woodwork and tell you about how their weddings went and how they wish you would do the same thing? Uh, no. 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 Now, in fairness, um, Mariah and I shut that shit down. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. No, and that is that is a factor, too. But the thing is, like, we get born... A lot of us get born into these traditions, into these concepts of what we should or should not be. And there's a tremendous guilt when those traditions don't work for who we are as people. You know, every time I, every time I reject a gender culture, a gender based uh, role Mm. that my, that my parent, like I'm a, I'm a flat out, put it out there. Like I'm Latino um, and anyone and, and, Granted, if you're outside of Latino culture and you're calling it out for this, you might be a racist. Um, but as a as a member of this culture, I will <laughs> flat out say it is a misogynistic, heteronormative, homophobic culture in many, many ways. It is a culture where 
and, and and again, anyone who tells you this isn't the case is not paying attention or lying to themselves. It is a culture where it is acceptable to hit your children for not conforming to gender roles. Hmm. And it's because there's a traditional concept of what a you are supposed to be a stereotypical straight heteronormative child that conforms to the gender you were assigned at birth and you don't step out of that. And I've got queer members of my family who aren't open with all of the family because the fact of the matter is there's people who will write them out because they're not following the cultural tradition. Sure. There are members of the family where even me, you know, they don't, they're, they're, they're members of the family that I have to be careful of how much I talk to them because they don't like my atheism. Right. Because because you were baptized fue, fue baptismo and 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 la iglesia de Dios, you were you were baptized in the church of God. You 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 know, we have done everything right. Your your mother did everything right. Why aren't you conforming to this? And that doesn't work for me. Therefore, I have to carry the guilt of that. And it's only when I decided I don't carry the guilt of that anymore. And this this isn't just the religion. This is also, you know, the gender roles. This is the fact that I don't necessarily know, uh, well, I know for a fact, if Stephanie and I have a family, it probably will not look like the family that I had growing up or that a lot of the rest of my family has. And that is a problem for a lot of people i know because they've told me it's a problem for them right because i'm not conforming to a traditional model and that is unacceptable because the only thing that that the only thing that that traditional model has is the only argument for it is that it's old and the way it's always been and that is a bullshit argument made in bad faith that is unacceptable and needs to be eradicated it does not deserve to exist. If your family model has validity, if it actually imparts something that is useful, that is great. But, like, I, I honestly kind of like the model where, you know, uh, grandparents are heavily involved in their kids' lives. Sure. I, I really like that model, and that's really traditional in uh, Latino culture. It's not always available. It wasn't available to me. My grandparents were either had either passed away or were on another continent but i see a lot of value in that model a lot of the time but i see value in it because if you a if you have grandparents to your kids who have a good relationship with them who aren't shit heels who will not give them tremendous problems when they don't conform to certain ideas if they're cool if they're it like they have to fit in the scenario and if they don't fit in the scenario the tradition does not deserve to be followed. Sure. That's that's my thesis of this entire thing is that traditions are bullshit because in and of themselves just because they shouldn't they they, they have no right to exist just because they're traditional. Sure, no, it needs to stand up to scrutiny. Um yeah. and if if you get offended at the idea of there being scrutiny at all, then it's probably going to fail. Um, yeah. I'm, try I'm trying to be the opposite of an old man yelling at a cloud right now. Good on you, man. <laughs> yeah, like I'm trying to be like a young man yelling at the earth. That's, that's... <laughs> you wouldn't understand, Dad. You're not with it. No, I think you're trying to break a 
potentially harmful notion. You know, yeah. we've, we've talked about how not all traditions are bad, but some of them absolutely are. And if more people could just break out of the headspace, it's interesting you talked about guilt. I didn't even consider that. And that is probably one of the most powerful motivators out there, familial guilt. Um, and, you yeah. know, absolutely there are people who aren't going to be able to overcome that and are going to, you know, stay in these traditions because of that. And that's not cool. You know, I think I think it needs to stand up scrutiny. And I think absolutely it cannot be something that can hurt a child hurt anybody but especially hurt a child yeah so you know no herpes brisses right (laughs) um i I, i'll i'll state this personal opinion i don't believe in spanking that can be a controversial opinion to voice on the internet sure but like yeah i i don't believe in spanking i've read the research uh i grew up with it i don't think it did any good for me and and it's funny because i'll have this argument with some of my and I'm not shaming parents out there who spank. Like, I'll, at the end of the day, you do what you think is best for your child. Uh, that's not a hill I'm willing to die on, to be honest. Because, again, I was spanked. I did come out okay, but I don't think it did me any good. Some people argue that spanking teaches respect for parents. And all it taught me was, don't get caught, because yeah, then sure. you get spanked. Right. So it, it just made me more deceptive and more prone to lying. And, it may, I, I, and I argue you can't. It makes you fear your parents. Right. And I argue that you can't respect something you fear. Yeah, it's a good argument. Fear is power. So that's, and that's my personal belief there. But, you know, spanking was something I traditionally came up with. And it's not a tradition that I care to keep going. And I'm having that argument right now with friends and family who are having kids. (laughs) Sure. uh, And do believe in it. I'm also backed up by friends and family who grew up exactly like me and are like, no, yeah, no, fuck spanking. (laughs) That's not a thing. But yeah, so, uh, and that's, and that's fine. It's okay to have the discussion. That's the point, though. Yeah. Like, have the damn discussion and have a goddamn bullet point other than, well, that's the way it was for me or that's the way it's always been. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, that's that's the key. That's the key to a lot of things, but uh, absolutely in this case, you know, being able to just have a reasoning and, and have a benefit, hopefully. But, no, I agree, man. I... I I didn't think I was going to be falling on on opposite side of this particular fence with you, but I, I, I agree with what you're saying. Yeah. It's a vague concept, but I was interested in exploring it. So thank you for coming on that journey. Of course. Always my man. All right. You ready for this question? Without further ado, let's get into it. All right. So, uh, we did get a relationship question and Andy, we are going to have to come up with a call sign for this person. Sweet. But, uh, it's a, it's a short question. So hi guys. I have a question. Thank you for your question. How can I break up with my hairdresser when she's also my drinking buddy? We were drinking buddies first, and we do that more often. She started doing my hair around a year ago, and it's never really been great. I want to just switch to someone else, but don't want to hurt her feelings or our friendship. Help? That was the whole question. Help. Yes, we will help. (laughs) <laughs> yes. Um, for future reference, everyone listening, uh, we will happily take questions like this. No, no, no qualms with that at all. Yep. We do like more detail rather than less, but we are very, very happy to take your question. Uh, individual who we will now give a name to. I'm trying to think, famous, famous drinking buddies. Famous. <laughs> hey, what's going on, Army? My birthday, Sammy. 
Give me a beer, stick a candle in it, and I'll blow out my liver. <laughs> uh, famous um, drinking buddies or famous hairdressers. She's not the hairdresser, so I'm leaning drinking buddy. Did you ever watch Cheers? Yeah. All right. Hi, Norm. Ah, <laughs> uh, Norm. I love it. Okay, Norm. All right. So, Andy, would you like to start off this discussion for Norm, or should I? Should I see if I can? I'll, get a I'll start on? with my own thoughts. You know, this one is a little tricky. Um, you know, it's we care about our friends. This is a friend before. This is your friend before it's your hairdresser. So I absolutely get not wanting to hurt your friend's feelings. Um, and I, you know, I'm trying to come up with a reason you can give other than I don't like the work you've been doing. Because, um, <laughs> you know, maybe you maybe you just get a, a new hairstyle, go somewhere else beforehand. And when they see it, be like, oh, I just wanted to change. But I still don't know if that will cause a a conflict or not. Um, I'm gonna say right now that's a that's not a good idea because if your friend is a hairdresser, they'll know that you got a new haircut and then it's basically like you just switched without talking to them in the first place. Sure, yeah, good point there. No, and I, I, I figured of course the person's gonna understand you got a new haircut. Anybody who pays attention would, but I think the key here is parsing how to tell your friend but not make it clear that you don't dislike them for any other reason than you don't quite like what they've done to your hair you know clearly you're still friends clearly you're drinking buddies you're drinking buddies more often than your client um client relationship people yeah if you if you've got a thought alex go ahead i'm gonna keep trying to so i remember I remember a while ago when we were talking to Bishop, Bishop from Aliens yeah. and not, not any other kind of Bishop, uh, where uh, his topic was how do you tell a friend that they're cheating on them or, or that their significant other is cheating on them. And, you know, the, the general consensus there was bite the bullet. Yeah. You, you, you suggested alcohol. Um, <laughs> clearly, this is a case where y- y'all, y'all do drink. And that's a great thing. Um, you, you ref- I, I'm interested that you refer to your hairdresser as a drinking buddy and not as, like, a close personal friend. Maybe I, I might be reading a little bit too much into that, but it sounds like this is a fairly casual friendship that you want to keep it going. You also don't give any personality to this other individual, but I think, uh, obviously... This is not something you want to just grin and bear. Anyone that you have a relationship with where there's this exchange of services, especially something as personal as hair. I I mean, I've gone through hell and back trying to find, you know, a good... I think a good barber or hairdresser, much like a good doctor or a good mechanic, like, they're worth their weight in gold. Yeah, absolutely. My initial instinct when I read this question was like, why would you ask your friend to be a hairdresser for you? Like, that's such a terrible idea. That's like, you never mix like your friends and something, something like so, so close and important to you. Like, that's such a bad idea. But that's, you know, that's, that's giving you shit for something that's already happened. Well, and I will say, and that's not fair. I will say maybe they didn't ask, you know, I've got uh, a friend of mine who, uh, studied at Aveda and as she was getting her 
degree or whatever as a as a hair person <laughs> uh you know she was all about hey let me give let me give you cuts let me let me let me practice on you and and you know even after she graduated she was trying to you know cut her friend's hair and it was a for me it was a thing of like you're my friend uh, I don't particularly care where my hair gets cut. Yeah, absolutely. If, the, if, if, if having you cut my hair makes you feel better and, and gives you a chance to get some more experience, absolutely cut my hair. Um, so maybe this is a situation like that where uh, Norm got, uh, you know, a, a little bit roped in. Um, and, you know, it's I find it interesting that this has been going on for a year and you've you've grinned and bared it for at least this long. You know, I think that that might be part of, so, so uh, let, let me go ahead and say, I do agree. You know, I don't know why it was harder for me to say, just go ahead and you need to bite the bullet and do it for this than for other stuff. But I, <laughs> I think, I, I think you do need to next time you guys are at the bar, you know, have this conversation. And I think, part of the thing you can do to deflect some of the potential conflict is I think you, you are allowed to say, you know, I've been seeing you for a year. I think I want to see somebody else because clearly you've given this quite a shot. You know, I don't know how many times you've had your hair worked on in this past year, but it's been a year. I would imagine minimum three, four, whatever, um, you've, you've given this a shot and you are allowed to not be happy with the product. And, you know, that doesn't speak to this person being a bad friend to you. It doesn't even speak to them being a bad hairdresser per se, but yeah. not a good fit for you and your hair. Yeah. Um, no, that's. That makes sense. Uh, you, you don't really say if this if your friend is someone who would like take it really personally. Um, I don't know if this is your sense of awkwardness or your sense of uh, fear that your friend will just react poorly because of maybe their own personality. Like we've all we've all got those friends who we're a little worried to give bad news to. They yeah. can be a little more on the volatile side, and you know that really sucks. It super does, but, you know, I am assuming that you're, well, for one thing, you're listening to our podcast, so I assume you're not, like, close to death, age-wise. <laughs> um, that, that might be assumptive, I, I don't know. Uh, but uh, I would assume you and your friend are going to keep contact for a good while, and I would also assume that they're going to be a hairdresser for a while. So what? Are you going to spend the rest of your life getting haircuts that you're not really into because you're afraid of the conflict? Like, honestly, this is this is a situation where I think honesty is a better policy. Yeah. Um, I really do. Like, don't... I, I might have said this before, but, you know, truth without... Honesty without compassion is cruelty. You know, don't be cruel. Be compassionate about this. Sit here and go, hey, listen... You're my friend. I love you. I love hanging out with you. I don't want to fuck up our friendship. I don't know about you cutting my hair anymore. If you want to try softening the blow, maybe it's an economic thing. Like, see if you can 
recommend friends to her because sure. again like if, if the problem isn't that she's a shitty hairdresser if she's just not working out for you help find people who might work for her or get her like feel free to talk her up try to get her some extra business if the problem is purely just a personal thing you don't want to hurt feelings you know tough shit people get their feelings hurt and you shouldn't have to suffer for that you know and i, I was gonna add on you know if uh if saying, hey, I don't want you to cut my hair anymore ends your your drinking buddy friendship, then... That was a shitty friendship. Th- yeah, what thin ice was it on in the first place? Yeah, I mean, and, and, and again, you call them your drinking buddy, so it's probably fairly casual. I don't know if you're in a group of people, and that might make things awkward, but again, there is a right thing to do here, and the right thing to do is to kindly, compassionately... And with, you know, all offerings to try and make up for it as best as can, if appropriate, just do the breakup. Yeah. And it is it is a breakup. It is an honest-to-God breakup. You tell her, hey, I this, this is why it's not working out for me. You don't have to say it's not me, it's you. But you do have to say, I have reasons. They're valid. I am an independent, independently thinking person who can make judgments. And my judgment is... This aspect, this relationship as, you know, client and hairdresser is not working. This relationship as friends is working great. And try and lay all of that down. And if, you know, they can't be mature enough to handle that, that's not your fault. Yeah. No, it's, an, it's important to know that. And don't be an agent in your own misery. That's That's... That might be, like, the best tagline to a lot of our relationship questions is, or a lot of our answers to these is just, what's the answer where you are not an agent in your own misery? Sure. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I, there, there's our advice for you, Norm. Um, you know, you can, you can take Alex and quote him um, at the ending there. But, you know, I think if this is a drinking buddy, if this is a friend that is truly a friend to you then you're you're going to be able to get through this just fine um you know of course stay compassionate but at the end of the day it's your hair it's your life it's your decision and you are fully allowed to just sit them down you know if it's in a group setting pull them aside but you're allowed to sit them down and explain that you don't want them to cut your hair anymore and it's your money too yeah that's another factor like all right you think we're good for the norm I think we're good, Norm. Uh, feel free to send us a picture of your new hairstyle if you like it. <laughs> yeah, and uh, no, keep us posted. Like so far, no one has sent us up, has sent us like their their follow ups or anything like that. We're three episodes in as far as like postings are concerned. So please, we want your follow ups. We will happily take them. They might make our episodes a little bit longer. We're at one. We're at like one thirty five now. But <laughs> clearly, uh... we're not concerned with length anymore. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you're not concerned with length, but girth. <laughs> we're concerned with girth. There you go. <laughs> oh. All right. And on on, oh. on the penis note, that has been our show. That has been Love Hate Relationship. Uh, I'm Andy Boel, and you can follow me at Joe. Wait, wait, wait. Relationship problem. Oh, yes. Thank you. Just a reminder. Uh, if you have a relationship problem with a loved one, coworker, anybody, hairdresser, drinking buddy, any anything in between, if you have a a thing, a person in your life that you are connected to and you are having a problem with that person, 
please feel free to send your question into love hate relationship podcast at gmail.com where we promise we will read them we have read everyone so far yep uh, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, and even TuneIn Radio, where you can listen, along with my mother. Uh, <laughs> and, and you can also tweet us at LHRPod, that's L-H-R-P-O-D, with your questions, and you can follow us there to keep up with new episodes. That's right. You can also find us at lovehaterelationship.net. That is our site. It is lovely. Um, you can follow me, Andy Boel, at uh, jovocop2113 on Twitter. And I'm at A underscore X underscore R-U-I-Z on both Twitter and Instagram. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone. And as always, we love you. And please tell your enemies.